You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Nir Shafir. The subject of today's podcast is disease and landscape in medieval and early modern European thought. We're looking at connections between uh, imaginaries of disease in, in Europe itself and how Europeans came to see uh, disease in other geographies and landscapes, including the Ottoman Empire. Our guest today is working on that very subject for her ongoing research. Lori Jones is... Currently a PhD candidate at University of Ottawa, where she's also an instructor. Uh, and prior to starting her PhD, she has an extensive experience, more than 20 years of work in international health and development. So it's very nice to have you on the podcast today, Lori. Thanks, Chris. I'm really happy to be here. So our listeners will recognize Nir's voice, obviously. Nir, you and I, I counted before the podcast. We've actually, this is the 17th podcast we're appearing in together. together. So, I mean, <laughs> we're getting up there. It's getting a little bit interesting between us. Um, but in addition to Nir on the podcast, we have um, a newcomer, Andreas Guidi. I wanted to introduce him because he has a podcast of his own, the Southeast Passage podcast, which is about uh, Southeastern Europe. Andreas Guidi is a PhD student at Humboldt University in Berlin. Andreas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have a, another podcaster on the podcast. We have all layers of <laughs> podcasts going on here today. So returning to our subject, which is disease and landscape, and really specifically plague and landscape in medieval and early modern Europe... I'll mention we've had other episodes on plague. We uh, actually, three years ago, in this very apartment in Paris, I interviewed uh, Edna Bonhomme about her ongoing research on plague in North Africa. Uh, and we've also had a recent episode with uh, Nuket Varlik, um, author of Plague and Empire, a work on uh, early modern plague in the Ottoman Empire, uh, which Nir conducted. In that podcast, uh, Nuket explained how there, with the foundation of the Ottoman Empire and its conquest of different territories, things like plague capitals, uh, nodes of plague bringing together different territories emerged. Uh, and a lot of this new research has been enabled by developments uh, in genetics and working with geneticists. Yeah, and what I found so interesting about your interview with Nuket, Nir, and Nuket's book is great, I've read it, uh, is how um, sort of the frontiers of uh, the study of disease and plague in the Ottoman Empire are really exploring these sort of you know, scientific methods of uh, inquiry about the past. So maybe, Lori, maybe we can start off the conversation with a more general question about, um, you know, what is the state of plague studies uh, in in the history of medieval and early modern Europe? It's a topic that's been studied for a long time. It's well-tread, but I'm I'm curious, like, where the field is at right now in terms of the questions that are being developed. A lot of what's going on right now is really based on the scientific discoveries that are being made, it seems one right on top of the other, on top of another. And a lot of it is genomic studies, right. looking at the evolutionary development of different strains of the plague and which ones are related to which ones. And I mean, certainly the most exciting thing was for all the plague deniers, the fact that the Black Death really was the plague. So just for our listeners, what do you mean what what is a plague denier? What did that? What is that concept? There is actually a whole group of historians who have denied for decades the fact that 
the Black Death was actually the plague because it doesn't behave the same way that modern right. plague does. So since it didn't behave in 1348 the way that it does in India today, it can't possibly have been the same disease. Right. And this spurred actually a lot of fruitful debates about the perils and troubles of a retroactive diagnosis based on like sources that are very different from the types of uh, observations that doctors and scientists today would use to uh, write about plague. Yeah, exactly. And so what's happening now is the fact that we know that the plague, Yersinia pestis bacteria, actually did exist at that time. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes, why did it behave differently right. in mm -hmm. the past as compared to how it does today? And what was different about human society or climate, right. for example, at the time than what's different today? Right. And which, again, encourages this to return to the very fundamental questions we have about the, the nature of plague and how it is changed by different environmental conditions, which, which naturally leads us to also interrogate the imaginaries uh, of disease and plague in the past. Um, of course, ideas that, you know, within a progressive scientific view have maybe, maybe seen as antiquated or discredited, but actually it's oftentimes they can prove quite revealing about how disease was behaving in the past. Well, exactly. And we're so used to dismissing what people in the past had to say because they don't have the same scientific knowledge that we have mm -hmm. today, but they were fully capable of observing what was going on around them. And we really need to take those observations seriously. So let's get into those observations because, you know, plague is ultimately a bacteria. It's a much more complicated story than that, but the bacteria Yersinia pestis is the uh, identified uh, a cause of plague. And now we've even established, uh, as you've mentioned through genetic research, that this exists in many historical examples of plague in the past. Um, but uh, in, in medieval and early modern Europe, and there's this, there was this lingering um, notion that plague was very much tied to landscape. You, you refer to the term plaguescape uh, in, in the, the article you had sent us in pr preparation for this podcast. Why don't you tell us about, you know, kind of situate us in that, in that realm of uh, uh, European plaguescapes of the past. Sure. And I need to say first off the bat that I actually borrowed the term plaguescape from Nuquette um, mm -hmm. because we share a lot of writings back and forth. And I saw that she had written that once and I said, I'm sorry, I'm taking that as <laughs> mine now. Um, so essentially in trying to explain where the plague came from, how it developed, a lot of the early um, discussions were based on astrological conjunctions that, that would corrupt the air. But a secondary source was often the land, mm -hmm. uh, whether that be swampy um, areas where the water doesn't flow properly, mm -hmm. which generates a smell, or enclosed spaces, mm -hmm. or earthquakes, anything that would give off a smell mm -hmm. that was not a good smell was seen to be disease generating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so really what I was started to look at is what types of landscapes mm -hmm. were specifically prone to produce disease. Right. And certainly all these types of landscapes produced many types of diseases, but eventually they came to be very much tied to the plague. Hmm. That sounds fascinating. One, I'd, I'd be interested to know kind of one, what are those different landscapes? And two, how this relates to just a point you brought up a bit earlier, which is in the historical sources, plague doesn't act in the same way as modern plague uh, does today when we find it in India or, or elsewhere. Sure. Um, let me address the second point first. Sure. The, one of the things that really baffled historians and scientists for a long time was the fact that the plague, the Black Death Plague, moved very quickly. 
certainly within six years, it had covered the entire, almost the entire European continent, North Africa, possibly Sub-Saharan Africa, Middle East. Plague in India in the late 19th century did not move that fast. Hmm. It moved actually very slowly. So right. there was a question of, well, how could it have possibly moved that quickly? That's one point. Another point is, according to archaeologists, there are no rat bones found, in nor- especially in Northern European um, archaeological sites. So if the plague, as it was determined at the end of the 19th century, is spread by rat fleas, then how could it possibly have existed in Europe? Because mm. it there mm-hmm. weren't any rats. Although we now know that um, there's more than 80 different varieties of fleas and lice that carry plague and more than 200 different species of animals, right. including camels. So if you want to eat camel meat, you probably shouldn't because <laughs> camels carry it, as do things like rabbits. Mm-hmm. That's Sorry, I, this is just an aside, but um, that's an interesting point about the rat bones because, I mean, what I had uh, learned about medieval Europe is that you know, we had assumed previously that there weren't rats in medieval uh, in the Roman world, but they had come through the Roman infrastructure and began to colonize, um, you know, all sorts of ports of uh, Mediterranean, Northern Europe. And that what had actually changed was that uh, archaeologists weren't using, I think, fine enough sieves to find the rat bones and find these traces of rats uh, in the um, digs. Yeah, I've heard some of the okay. same things. Um, I actually don't know enough about archaeology to really comment okay. intelligently on that. But certainly, I don't know that they've been looking mm-hmm. for rat bones up until now. So to say that there aren't any might just be the fact that people haven't been looking sure. for them. But now if we know that we need to be looking at rabbits and squirrels and right. chipmunks and everything else, and it puts a whole, totally different spin on things. The other thing is just how virulent the plague was Mm -hmm. in 1348 compared to how it Mm -hmm. was in India. Um, And even now it's not that virulent. So what made it different? And so we now know that we need to look at a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. It's not just the bacteria, it's climate and nutrition and environment and everything that goes along with that. And and our historical subjects uh, certainly weren't looking for rat bones or, or rabbits and this kind of stuff when they were looking for the source of a place. Let's go back to that question of right. what did they look for in those uh, environments and um, in, in the sources that we have from the period? Well, as I mentioned earlier, really it's anything that causes a bad smell was deemed to mm-hmm. be something that could generate disease. So if we're looking at swamps, mm-hmm. we're looking at enclosed spaces, we're looking at water storage that isn't flushed out continuously. Mm -hmm, So then you've got the gutters in the streets Mm -hmm. that don't get flushed out properly. Um, You've got lakes that don't have a flow through in them. So anything that causes stagnation um, is is a landscape that could create plague. The other thing is landscapes that have hills and tall trees that block the sun. Mm hmm. So again, things that don't allow good airflow mm-hmm. to go through. Right. So those types of things. And and to be clear, we're talking about uh, early modern European knowledge. But this, uh, as someone who works on the Ottoman Empire, this sounds very familiar to the the body of knowledge surrounding plague and also diseases like malaria, which I work on. That uh, similar notions are found in, in in both Ottoman texts and among the the general belief of the population of the Ottoman countryside. So I'm wondering, what is the history of these ideas about um, contagion? Uh, how old are they? Where do they come from? 
Well, certainly the idea about landscapes generating disease goes back as far as 500 BC. Sure. Um, the Greeks were really the first ones to put in writing mm -hmm. the fact that certain landscapes, certain places could generate disease. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the ideas existed even long before them, but just weren't put into writing. Mm -hmm. Right. Certainly when you say bad smell, I mean, that sounds straightforward enough because human beings tend to register certain things as bad smells, but there's a whole issue of the relationship between sensory, I think, and uh, perception of uh, disease that is very interesting to discuss there. Why do people instinctively see these as bad smells and relate them to plague as a, as a question all its own? And I think we actually still do that today. I mean, if you're walking down the street and you walk by a sewer smell, the first thing yeah. you want to do is hold your breath because you don't want to smell it in and get yeah. sick from it. Mm-hmm. But actually, in, in, in medical text, this actually develops into a more uh, theoretized body of knowledge about the relationship between, uh, as you said, the, the airs and the smells uh, and uh, uh, contagion. Yeah, exactly. And in, in addition to that, it's knowing that certain, as I said, certain landscapes, but also certain regions of the world were more likely to generate these types of problems, especially places that had hot, humid weather. Mm -hmm. And when the winds blow from the south to the north, they bring said hot, humid weather with them. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was to keep the, the windows on your house closed to the south so you don't have these hmm. hot, humid um, weather coming into your house. And as you said, some of this is coming out of Greek texts all the way back to classical period and th that, of course, would have been extant in the Islamic world. Well, exactly. And it's almost as if the Greek ideas that these hot, humid, disease-prone winds were coming from North Africa across the Mediterranean, they, the same, exact same ideas show up in English texts mm -hmm. in the 14th, 15th century mm -hmm. and in French texts and in German texts. Mm -hmm. And so it's really taking that body of knowledge and just replicating it. In this theoretical knowledge about the connection between landscape and disease, it seems most of it is being drawn, as you said yourself, from these written texts. But is how do we get at kind of what is the folk knowledge about landscape and disease? Uh, you know, were these ideas just found amongst people as well? That's actually a really good question and one that's a little bit difficult to answer um, because as historians, we mostly rely on texts. Um, certainly anthropologists would look at folk practices and not being an anthropologist, I'm not entirely sure where we would look for that, except I suppose there could be some writings of people observing things mm -hmm. of how people might behave or of certain um, superstitions that might carry on over time. Um, certainly my own research focuses primarily on what are called plague tracks, which are texts that were written to provide information about what the plague was, how to prevent it, how to treat it, largely written by physicians, but mm -hmm. not only. Right. If you know what I mean? Some of them were very administrative right. and some of them were very religious, um, each targeting different kinds of audiences. Right. But certainly if we look at folk ideas and practices, it was, it's really looking at how did people live their lives mm -hmm. and what might they have done yeah. to try and prevent something. I think we find many of the same things in the Ottoman context as well. You know, you have plague treatises uh, that go from everything from magic squares to much more kind of medical, uh, formally medical um, treatises written by doctors to all sorts of mm -hmm. uh, a variety of different subjects and ways to tackle the issue of plague. Right. And I, 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 near, if I could jump in there, I Please. mean, we, we should, we should note, you know, as, as 
the research of Bruno Latour and other historians of science and medicine does note that, you know, imagining the the writers of the early modern period as somehow totally separate from the realm of folk uh, practice with regard to medicine and all of this stuff is, is you know, very uh, problematic. And indeed, the very notion that the laboratory is separated from that context is also a problem in the historiography. So it's it's only n- natural to, to see these texts as, as reflective of, of general uh, ideas that are in circulation, um, unless well, we have reason to believe otherwise. Well, and that's exactly true. And especially if I look at, for example, the English and the French texts that I'm looking at specifically, the manuscript versions of them were mostly limited to either academic or religious communities. Mm-hmm. But once they started to be printed, just the very physical nature of how they appeared mm-hmm. demonstrates that they were actually meant for what's generally called the middle class, the mm-hmm. middling class. So a totally different audience. So yes, the ideas were at least over time being integrated into popular belief. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton, Nir Shafir, and Andreas Guidi here talking to Lori Jones about her research on plague and landscape in early modern Europe. I'd like to make a plug for Nir Shafir's uh, series on the history of science, Ottoman or otherwise, within which this um, podcast is found. Really a great series that brings together an array of topics, but a lot of them focusing exactly on what we've been talking about so far, this realm of early modern knowledge and transformation and connections between uh, the Ottoman world and its surroundings. So on that note, I want to kind of, I want to bring up a quote from uh, this article that you provided us, and that can be found on the website in your bibliography. Um, And I found it quite evocative. I've highlighted it here. It says, while belief in the overall landscape disease relationship remained largely intact, portrayals of where those diseased landscapes were located changed over time. Uh, and I found this interesting because I think, uh, as you pointed out in your own research, um, plague, for instance, disappears from Northern Europe uh, over the 18th century. And now all of a sudden you have to think about, well, what are, what are these, where are the diseased landscapes? How does this relationship uh, between location, space, and uh, disease develop uh, in this period? That's a great question. And it's one of the things that I've been finding most fascinating in my own research is how the places that generated plague seem to have shifted over time. And part of it was a shift from landscapes that we might consider to be rural mm-hmm. because early earlier medieval Europe was quite rural to recognizing that it was almost only in big cities. So Mm -hmm. what was it about cities that became particularly problematic? And then within cities, what areas of cities became the most problematic? And that's where we started to really see the focus on the parts of the cities inhabited by the poor Mm -hmm. that became blamed for the plague. Last big plague in England was in London in 1665. The year after that was the big fire, which burnt down much of the city. Plague didn't come back Hmm. in a big way. Hmm. So you can see the English writers starting to see maybe the fire cleaned out the plague. We have now rebuilt our city. It's much airier. The streets are much wider. It's much cleaner. But you know, those Ottoman cities, they're just like ours Mm -hmm. used to be. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's where the plague comes from. 
And then certainly by the time of the plague of Marseille, you see English writers in particular very specifically writing that the plague came from the Ottoman Empire. And since it comes from the Ottoman Empire, it must have always come Mm. from the Ottoman Empire. Mm. So there was no longer a sense that our cities were dirty and disgusting and plague generating it was, they. it must have always been brought from the outside. Right, Laura. I think that's a very fascinating point. And, and you know, that, that, that quotation that Nir just read to us is, is really your reference to that fact that, the, that there's a continuity in the association of plague with landscape, but a major shift in terms of where those landscapes are located. Yeah, exactly. And I even see in one of the um, French tracks that I was reading this week was, the plague of Marseille must have been brought in by a ship from the Levant because our city is clean mm-hmm. and airy and spacious, so it can't possibly have been generated here. So we see already how this discourse of disease and landscape starts integrating into new representations of the Orient as a kind of dark and uh, dismal place in a sense. Well, and and uh, I've heard uh, Nuket Varlik referred to this as epidemiological Orientalism, essentially, mm-hmm. which is, which is also um, sort of reified by the fact that when Europeans go to uh, warmer climates, they tend to be struck by all these diseases <laughs> that um, don't actually seem to affect the local populations as much as they affect them. Well, exactly. And that's where we start to see the whole rise of tropical medicine right. as a discipline. What I found really interesting in the travel writings of Europeans is early on, say the 16th century, they are describing Turkish populations, especially in Constantinople, as exceedingly clean. The cities is very clean. The people is bathing regularly, which comes as quite a shock to the Europeans. And yet by the 1700s, they're dirty, disgusting people. So again, there's a shift. And I, I really think a lot of the shift comes down to changing politics in Europe, but mm-hmm. also the changing relationship mm-hmm. between the Europeans and the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, so the shift sits at sort of a nexus of, on one hand, plague in Europe is changing. On the other hand, European relations with the rest of the world are changing you know, during this moment of or, you know early colonialism and imperialism setting out into many of the very landscapes that would be deemed insalubrious uh, by Europeans over the course of the 18th century. As a matter of fact, we talked about it in a previous podcast with Edna Bonham, how Anglo-American doctors um, living in the Middle East, living in Cairo, took it upon themselves to experiment with a disease that they saw as sort of all, all of a sudden rooted in, rooted in those medieval cities, even though like a hundred years ago that disease was as much native to Europe as uh, elsewhere. Well, exactly. And somebody actually brought up a really interesting point to me Uh, a few weeks ago when I'm talking about the shift of the plague from Europe to, uh, to the Ottoman empire is why the same shift didn't happen from Europe to North America Mm -hmm. because we don't really see plague tracks or plague writings being a big thing in North America. Certainly there wasn't a lot of plague Mm -hmm. in North America until the 19th century, early 20th century. And so when the settlers were going and dying en masse from malaria and from other diseases, the idea of plague didn't come with them. Yeah. And why is that? And that's a question I don't know the answer to. Well, it opens up a whole larger question, which I think you're dealing with here, which is the, the ways in which European views of their own landscapes, say, say in France or in, in, in England, uh, impact the way they see the landscapes they encounter. So in the, in the case of the Americas, 
um, early uh, colonial settlers saw the Americas as like a pristine, like untouched landscape. We know from the work of William Cronin, this was not the case that, you know, American Indian communities had all these ways of changing the landscape that, that to Europeans made them look quote unquote wild, but were in fact, uh, you know, a form of second nature in a way. And of course that, that whole perception of, of the home landscape, as you say, also influences, uh, the, the perception of the, say the, the Ottomans or South Asia, for example. Well, exactly. And especially if we keep in mind the fact that by the 17th, 18th centuries, the plague was very definitely an urban problem. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there weren't big urban centers in North America for them to worry Ah, about. mm. Interesting. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. We're here with Lori Jones talking about her research on uh, plague, uh, landscape, uh, and disease in medieval and early modern Europe. Uh, I'll remind you again, we have uh, Andreas in the studio. Um, He's the founder of the Southeast Passage uh, podcast. You'll find the link on our webpage or you can check them out on Facebook. Andreas, I'll turn it over to you for a question. Laurie, I have a question about uh, this kind of um, um, region in between most of the writers you deal with, mostly from Northern Europe and the Ottoman world and the Mediterranean um, area. Because... um, I would like to know how Northern European writers sort of um, where exactly they define the boundaries of this um, um, areas that also became social environmental uh, regions. You, you mentioned Southern Europe as a sort of in, in-between zone where epidemic diseases could originate mm-hmm. or at least transit on the way to Northern Europe. Although I assume that um, the kind of exotic or proto-orientalist tone in these writings had a different uh, declension. So, um, can we speak of a different discourse about this Southern European region that maybe help us also relocate this paradigm of Mm -hmm. Northern Europe versus the Ottoman world? And uh, do we have examples of writings coming from, for example, from the uh, Venetian Republic or other uh, Northern Mediterranean region that can shed light on that? From what I understand, certainly most of Europe produce the same kinds of texts that I'm looking at. Um, I've chosen mostly just to focus on the English and the French ones for language reasons, because they're easier for me to look at. Um, Other people have already done research on the German ones and on Italian ones Mm -hmm. as well. So they do exist with the same basic premise through all of them. What I find quite interesting in the English and French ones is when they want to give examples of plague outbreaks in other places, they most obvious or most often make reference to ones in Italy. Mm. So actually that's a great point that just tweaks something that I'll need to remember later when I'm writing is that often the foreign outbreaks are Italian ones. So it could be Mm -hmm. subtly putting the plague as also Mm. an Italian problem. Uh, The other thing that I find really interesting when they talk about the wind, the southerly winds being a problem mm-hmm. in France or in the French tracks, they often specifically talk about Le Midi, mm-hmm. which, I mean, as we yeah. know, is the southern half of France. So again, we, we have a geopolitical yeah. difference. We have mm-hmm. a language difference. And now we have a situating a plague 
in that area. Right. Like they never talk about the plague came from Germany or the plague mm. came from the Netherlands. It mm. always came from somewhere south and somewhere mm-hmm. east. Mm-hmm. And if I can pull that question out even more and, and make a reference, maybe bring you in here, Nir. Uh, you had this interview with Valentino Pugliano about uh, Venetian physicians in the Ottoman Empire and, and mm-hmm. how actually Venetians were sort of at the forefront of uh, medical practice uh, during the early, much of the early modern period, especially in the Levant. Um, and I'm wondering uh, about the role that, um, you know, Venetians are, or, or Italian doctors, as Andreas is alluding to, are what role they're playing in sort of creating this uh, perception that, I don't know, maybe the, the East is, is part of the disease equation. That's an interesting point because I was just thinking that in the 18th century, many of the doctors in the Ottoman Empire, especially Christians, were going to Padua, were going to Italian right. medical colleges uh, to get trained uh, and then returning to the Ottoman Empire. So it's this uh, movement and circulation of people and alongside it kind of uh, knowledge, medical knowledge. Yeah. Well, and I think it's really important to keep in mind that underlying all of this is not just trade relationships that were going on between the various European kingdoms or empires and the Ottomans, but the battles that were going on between the Europeans themselves, mm-hmm. um, especially after the Reformation. So then we've got Protestant England allying with the Ottoman Turks against the Catholic yeah. Holy Roman Empire. So all of that yeah. is going on underneath all of these discussions about where the plague came from mm-hmm. as well. So sometimes trying to pick those threads out is quite difficult, but I do think that it's influencing who they're saying is plague ridden. Mm-hmm. Right. You usually try to pin it on your enemy. Right. And in this yeah. case, the enemy is uh, changing with each alliance. Right. And we, we know this well from, from the research on, on the history of syphilis, including the research of Sechel Yilmaz on the mm-hmm. Ottoman case, uh, on how syphilis is one of these diseases that always seems to be named after your, your least favorite neighbor. So <laughs> mm-hmm. for, for the Ottomans, it's the, the Franks, right? The Europeans who are the purveyors mm-hmm. of uh, syphilis, whereas, you know, for the French, it's the Italians and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, exactly. And I bring that up in my class that I teach about uh, cultural history of disease. And one of the themes that we talk about is strangers and disease Mm -hmm. and how certain groups of people Mm -hmm. get identified with certain diseases based on Mm -hmm. which perspective you're looking from. So maybe I suggest as a a little follow up that we uh, move on in time. And uh, we've mentioned areas like the Levant and the southern shore of the Mediterranean which, of course, in the 19th and early 20th century also become a colonized uh, space. So um, I would be, it would be interesting maybe to know more um, about whether the, this kind of normative knowledge produced during the pre-colonial period about and the discourse on hygiene and so on um, determined uh, policies and, and uh, regulations taken in regards uh, to hygiene for contexts like, for example, uh, French Algeria. Or do you think, on the contrary, that we can locate a sort of historical rupture with the beginning of uh, military occupation and colonialism in regards to uh, discourse on disease and and uh, hygiene? No, I think there's definitely some continuity. I mean, things evolve as they continue, but certainly even right up until the germ theory, you know, the late 19th century yeah. and even afterwards, the idea that certain places, certain types of spaces were diseased and could be cleaned 
or made better mm-hmm. always existed. I mean, we still mm-hmm. really, I mean, if we look at sort of the Purell craze and right. sanitization <laughs> craze, yeah. people still believe that. So it's just, it's shifted a little bit and it's evolved, but the idea, the link between landscape, however you want to define landscape and place right. and disease so, still exists. So mm-hmm. basically was change was mostly the, the capacity of these Western experts to intervene in that yeah, in that area, relations. although the discourse remained had a lot of similarities with the previous. Exactly, era, right? exactly. Yeah, I mean, we still talk about environmental yeah. medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Once again, Chris Grayton with Nir Shafir and Andreas Guidi here talking to Lloyd Jones about her research on uh, disease and landscape in uh, early modern Europe. Uh, we're going to shift gears a little uh, in the conversation for the remainder of our time and, and alert our listeners that on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, we have a number of images uh, related to the history of plague that are going to be discussed uh, over the, the subsequent minutes. And we want you to go ahead and pull that up at home and take a look at these images as we read them and also misread them uh, and, and uh, talk about uh, sort of historicity and the use of images vis-a-vis the question of disease. Precisely. So... Um, Laura, you're involved in this kind of fascinating side project, which is to correct uh, the usage of medieval images um, that are presumed to be images of the plague that we, you know, that have basically been released onto the Internet. And people have been constantly saying this is uh, a picture from a medieval manuscript of a plague victim. This is a very common problem uh, also with Ottoman sources, people making up or misattributing or constantly um, misidentifying certain images. Right. We, I even saw a colleague, he published a book with a very prominent publisher and the uh, cover actually featured a, uh, I guess, a, a fraudulent uh miniature painting that was actually a, a contemporary image that someone had made, but right. is widely in circulation as an old thing right and i see it myself too for instance there's this image of um uh, an ottoman belief that cavities are caused by demons residing in the tooth and someone has gone through and like you know created this image and now this is circulating on facebook and all sorts of different places so i find it interesting um that you've actually taken concrete measures to try to combat this let's just start with the basics can you describe one of these images uh how it got misattributed and um and then we can get into this process of what what is the process of correcting it and why. Sure. I, I would say that probably the most commonly mislabeled image of the plague is one that shows what looks to be some monks with spots on their faces. Mm-hmm. And it comes from a British library manuscript that was written by uh, an encyclopedist around 1375. And the whole point of the the entire manuscript was really to talk about the clerical way of life and the things that they could do and the things that they couldn't do, etc. And so this image was scanned, digitized, and uploaded by the British Library, put on into its online catalog, then released onto the internet. Somewhere along the line, somebody at the British Library put a caption on saying that this was clerics with the plague. Mm-hmm probably because it was written around the time that the, you know, shortly after the Black Death and we have people with spots. Um, Although plague 
generated spots. I mean, more commonly it was the big swellings of buboes, but spots mm-hmm. can work too. And so since the British Library had labeled it as the plague, of course, it's now a picture of the plague and it's widely circulated mm-hmm. as such. That label was made in error, unfortunately. And it seems that what happened is that whoever labeled the image didn't actually read the text mm-hmm. that the image was part of. Uh, the text says that the image is very clearly about leprosy. Mm. But, you know, plague is a lot more sexy than leprosy. <laughs> right. so, uh, <laughs> In some ways, <laughs> I guess. So how did it move from the British Library to kind of, I mean, I just looked it up. I just typed in plague image, like images of plague or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I found I found that image. That was one of the first ones. And it's like all over the place. It's on, yes. you know, 50 different Pinterest pages. Yes. So how did it go from the British Library to kind of everywhere on the internet? Well, what happens is British Library has a site called uh, British Library Images Online. Mm -hmm. where you can download copies of these images or you can pay to buy a better quality image. But the one that's on the images online site, you can very easily click it and download it. So, you know, anybody looking for something about the plague would find it. It then also got picked up and attached to the Wikipedia pages Mm -hmm. about the Black Death, which, I mean, again, once something's on Wikipedia, it must be true, right? (laughs) So um, what happens then is... Everybody who's looking for an image, you know, does a Google search images of plague, as you see very mm-hmm. clearly, it comes mm-hmm. up. Um, so then it starts showing up in academic books. It starts showing up in pamphlets, tourist books, yeah. scientific journal articles, you name it. It's it's everywhere. So what we ended up doing is I have a colleague who works uh, with Wikimedia mm-hmm. in London. And so he started working on changing all of the labels in all of the places that this image appears online in Wikipedia. And it's actually quite funny because each language in Wikipedia has its own pages Mm -hmm, and you mm -hmm. have to go through all of them individually. (laughs) So I think he said there was 24 different language sites that had this image somewhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what I did is a reverse image Google search to show me which websites are using this image. And then I started trying to track them down and get in contact with them to say, Hey, Hmm. you might want to know that this is not really the plague. And what was the response to your, um, uh, I would say I, I reached about 50 different websites. I ignored all the Pinterest and Tumblr ones because they're just not worth my time. Um, So I went after sort of real academic sites or commercial stock photo sites, which sell these images Mm -hmm. to people. Um, About half of them responded saying, thank you. I'm really glad you let me know. I've now fixed it. Some of them said, I'm going to leave it up as a teachable (laughs) moment because they were academic websites. Mm -hmm. And a couple were really snarky about it like well who really cares because i like the image and i'm going to leave it the way it is Mm -hmm. and the rest of them just never bothered responding so can i play devil's advocate and ask you why does this matter who really cares i mean if people want to misuse images what's the harm in that well as a medical historian i like to say that if i was teaching my class about the smallpox I wouldn't put up an image of somebody suffering from the flu Mm -hmm. because it would give the wrong impression of what the disease was about. So if we're trying to teach what disease looked like in the past or how people might have responded to it, I think it's important that we're using the right disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's easy to see how this happened. I mean, there's so many cases of this on the internet with images. Um, 
you know, the images so easily get disembodied from texts and somebody posting a conjecture suddenly becomes a fact, which turns into like a attribution and it happens very quickly. I mean, probably by the end of this, you'll be able to develop your own theory about the contagion of um, misattributed uh, photos and their uh, viral spread on the internet. But I mean, this is a relatively innocuous case in the sense that it's one disease mislabeled as another, perhaps. Um, I find much more insidious cases of um, uh, mistakes regarding images on on the internet. And I'm wondering if you've found any sort of more damaging examples uh, in your searches Mm -hmm. for sort of egregious errors regarding widely spread uh, images of the plague or not of the plague, as we're saying. Well, certainly in terms of just medieval medicine in general, people love taking caricatures out of medieval manuscripts and saying, look, this is a dentist pulling people's teeth. And, and I mean, that's really not what it's an image about <laughs> at all. And so it's, it's really promoting and replicating the idea of medieval medicine that it was stupid and ignorant and people yeah. didn't know anything. And so when I teach, I say, mm-hmm. okay, well, look, here's a picture of somebody doing eye surgery do you think they wouldn't have done that if nobody knew what they were doing? Mm-hmm. Or here's a picture of trepanation, you know, putting holes in people's head that we know that they survived from. So again, it's trying to undo the idea that medieval medicine was barbaric. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in a wider sense, you often see images, for example, of the of Ottoman Uh, Ottoman manuscript images that are given an interpretation from a modern Western perspective that Mm -hmm. totally undermines what the image is actually talking about. Yeah, I was asking myself whether you uh, just suggest that the image uh, be removed or that you also uh, maybe uh, propose a a real uh, image that uh, relates to, to the plug when you contact the owner of the of the website for example yeah i did both i i made the suggestion to them that of what the image caption really should say most people were using it on websites where they were talking about the plague specifically so that image mm. was not a- appropriate so i yeah. did give them the one single image yeah. that we know yeah. of um from the time of the black death and said this is a real image of the plague, yeah. if you will. Part of the problem is that images of the plague showing people with symptoms did not appear until mm. the late 14th, even into the 15th mm. and 16th centuries. Mm-hmm. So if we are looking for images of what medieval people thought of the plague, mm. there aren't any. Right, right. And so modern people say, well, we must have one. So therefore, yeah, right. we will decide which one's they are and the the internet encourages people to engage in these Mm -hmm. anachronisms because like i know from experience with the podcast that you know a lot of our traffic comes through facebook and every link that's posted on facebook must be associated with an image indeed an image that's proportions are like one by two essentially um uh, a high def screen um uh, dimensions more or less uh, in order for people to click so the idea of having content without an image is almost Mm. unthinkable uh in the 21st century but certainly uh was quite the norm and it it jumps straight into this question of kind of the need for visual representation uh the methods you know the codes of visual representation which were radically different in whether in the ottoman case or in medieval europe you know there's so many things that were you know i I work on manuscripts i've gone through thousands and thousands of manuscripts a number of illustrations that i see in there are almost you know 
zero to five or something. Uh, and it's such a radically different visual culture from what it is, what we have today and what, for instance, Facebook mm-hmm. uh, or the media or social media kind of drives us to constantly include these images. Uh, so I think I am very much appreciative of your project because I think it's trying to inculcate within us this kind of critical thinking about images that we as scholars should have and that we should impart to our students as well. And then certainly a lot of people say, well, what, why does it matter? And as historians, I mean, we wouldn't want the text that we use to be completely misinterpreted and have that run around the internet as meaning something else entirely. So an image is just as valid a piece of evidence as the text is. So we need to give it the same consideration. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Lori, thanks for, thanks so much for sharing, you know, both of these topics with us today. It's really been a great conversation. I think we're going to have to conclude there. Um, But yeah, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, Chris. It was great to be here and to meet Nir and Andreas as well. Yeah. Thanks, guys, for joining in. Andreas, thanks for joining us today. Hope to have you in uh, future episodes. Uh, I want to remind our listeners, you know, we have so many great episodes related to today's topic on our website. We've already mentioned a lot of them. We've had three episodes on plague so Yeah, far. plague alone and, and, and many other topics in Nir Shafir's uh, History of Science, Ottoman or Otherwise series. I mean, I have to plug an interview I did recently, not far from where we are right now in Paris with Amory Moulin about her research on uh, the Pasteur Institutes and their and their international networks. It's a really nice compliment. Uh, Amory is also a doctor, and so it's a nice compliment to Lori's research as someone working between uh, the Ottoman and European worlds, and also with this nice previous background working outside of the academy on the subject of health. Uh, I, I hope you guys who are listening and are interested in finding out more will check out those episodes as well as the reading list we have on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, uh, and get in t- touch with the uh, Facebook community of over 20,000 people following us uh, in, in all of our latest episodes. That's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Join us next time, and until then, take care. Take care.